We have, Katie and I have this little book, it's called Would You Rather, how many people have played that game, Would the, Would You Rather gang, you know, would you rather like get a pin in your eye, or have your toe, like a cinder block dropped in your toe, you know, like would you rather, you know, which of these two horrible things would you rather do, or would you like rather, I don't know, lose this item, or would you rather lose this item, you know, like would you rather fly across an ocean with one engine out, or would you rather... You know, you know, just crazy things. Like you have to pick between these two things that you would never really set up as a choice that you would want to pick between those two things. But you're in this moment in the game, you're forced to choose. Would you rather do this or would you rather do that? And they could be things that we would never give up if we were asked to give them up. Or they could be things that we would never want to do if we were asked to just do them. Um, and they're things... And it's perhaps putting us in situations where we have to choose between two things that we can't imagine life without. Like, well, of course I wouldn't want to lose an eye. Well, of course I wouldn't want to live without an ear. Like, but I'll be, i got to choose one. Would you rather this or would you rather that? And we get put in these situations. And perhaps there are things uh, in our lives as we think about them now, like, okay, maybe, what are the things that we can't imagine living without? Or things that if we were put in a situation of, like, would you choose this or that? We're going to have a hard time choosing between those things. And we'll come back to that when we talk, start talking about Herod. And this week we're continuing this Advent series and finishing it. When I emailed Brian, I said, we're wrapping up our Advent series. You can see it, but yeah, yeah. And I chuckled. I figured I'd repeat the joke, but you know, here we go. Uh, but Advent, as we've said, means arrival or coming. And as we're doing this, we're preparing our hearts for Jesus' first coming so we can celebrate uh, his birth. And last week we heard about... we. And two weeks ago, we had Jesus was born, and we saw how an angel appeared to Joseph and said uh, he is about to divorce Mary because, okay, she's pregnant. We haven't had sex, so she must have cheated on me. So he's going to uh, divorce her. An angel tells him, no, don't do that. This child is from the Holy Spirit, and you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And then we saw when Bob talked last week that he, he's born, uh, and then a couple of years later, these wise men these magi, astrologers, people that are, Bob called them star readers, people that are following the stars and looking at them, you know, I don't know, for, for purpose or meaning or to talk about what's going to happen in our life or in the future, and they see this star appear and they follow it all the way over from the east. Uh, they come all the way over to uh, Israel and they come to Jerusalem and say, we've been following a star. Where's the one who's born, who's said to be king of the Jews? And that gets Herod and all Jerusalem kind of aroused because King Herod is like, well, I'm king of the Jews. And Jerusalem's like, wait, what? Who's born? And then they discover, they think, okay, this must be the Messiah. And so he goes and asks the scribes and the chief priests, hey, when was this Messiah supposed to be born? Or where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they say, Bethlehem. And so he goes and tells the Magi, the wise men, and they're going to go off to Bethlehem. But then uh, he also says, like, about how long ago did this star appear? And they tell him when the star appeared. And then they go off. Um, but we learn maybe all isn't well, uh, starting in verse 12, because they go, they fall down before him, um, honor him as their king, open up these treasures. And in verse 12 we hear, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so if we were just reading Bob's passage last week, we might think, okay, Herod wants to go honor Jesus as king as well. Um, but we're shown in verse 12, things maybe are not all well with Herod in this situation with Jesus. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage 
and reflect on what it teaches us about God and our own lives. And so in verses 13 through 15 is one section. They're probably broken up in your Bibles. We're just going to take it how it's broken up. We have the, the escape to Egypt. And in verses 13 and 14, or yeah, verse 13, we get the angel's instructions. Uh, so now when they, uh, meaning the wise men, when they had departed, they were leaving Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so we learned, uh, so we're learning that Herod was actually lying. Back in verse uh, verse 8, he said, uh, you know, tells the wise men, when you find him, come back and report to me so I can come and worship him as well. And now we learn, oh, actually Herod's uh, intentions are different. He's He wants to actually destroy Jesus. And so he's, the wise men were seeking information about Jesus in order to worship him, but Herod's seeking information about Jesus because he wants to destroy him. Well, why is that? Because, well, Herod has been put in charge as the king of the Jews. He's not actually in the line of David. Some people actually argued about his heritage, about, like, is it even a true Jew? How can he be king of the Jews if he's not one of them? But he's this king that uh, really used some political maneuvering to get himself in position with Rome. And then Rome is like, okay, you're going to be on the throne. You're going to be ruling over uh, the, the Jewish people. And so he's kind of like this puppet king. But he's hearing, okay, somebody's been born king of the Jews. Uh, this isn't good for me because I want to be in this position of power. And so Herod, he has this, another king has been born. And he's the Messiah. This is the one God sent. And so he's thinking, I don't want to lose my power. I don't want to get off this throne. And I want to hand this down to my sons. And so I'm going to destroy this one who's born king of the Jews so I can keep being king of the Jews and my sons can keep being king of the Jews. But we see Joseph's obedience as we saw two weeks ago. He does exactly as the angel told him. The angel says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. Verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This is right at the end of Herod's life. Um, so he's only they only have to remain in Egypt uh, a short while. But Joseph does exactly as the angel said. And you, you know, put yourself in his shoes of like, you know, we would think, okay, an angel talked to him, so of course he's going to do it. Um, but we might have all kinds of times when we like feel I heard this from God, or I read the Bible and it was just so clear what I'm supposed to do. And then we still don't do it out of fear or discomfort or you know, the risks involved. And because he's picking up and traveling on down to a country that isn't his own with people he doesn't know. There was a population of Jewish people down in Egypt at this time. And there's lots of people. Uh, that was kind of a place to seek asylum if you were in trouble up in Israel. Um, so he's going down. He's probably going to be able to find other Jewish people. But he's leaving his home. He's leaving his family. And he's taking his his mother and little kid down on this journey. And so it took an act of faith for him to, to do this. And then we're told at the end of verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And now if you're, there's verses in the Old Testament or passages that we refer to as messianic prophecies. Like they were, predicting the Messiah, their prophecies about the Messiah. But this passage isn't really one of them. It's the prophets talking about um, the nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel, if you remember in Genesis, they all go down to Egypt, the families, there's this famine, and we have Joseph and the Pharaoh, and they come down to Egypt, 
Um, and God said, you're going to become enslaved down there. And we learn in the book of Exodus, if we were to just turn the page after Genesis, 400 years later, a pharaoh arises that doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know this family. They just see, wow, we got a whole bunch of Hebrews down here, a whole bunch of Jewish people. There's so many of them. What if they revolt? We need to enslave them uh, and give them harsh labor. And so they're really harsh to them, and they're enslaved there. But then God eventually uh, calls this man Moses says, I'm going to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. I'm going to lead them out, lead them to this promised land I promised to their ancestors. I'm going to give it to them so they can worship me and be in relationship with me. But God calls the people of Israel as a nation. He says, they are my son. He calls the nation as a whole his son. And so this prophecy in the book of Hosea, uh, God saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, God called Israel. Out of Egypt, God called his people because they're in slavery and God called them out of that through Moses when they were enslaved there. But what we're seeing here is that Matthew's saying, like, this is a repeat of what happened to the nation of Israel. Like, that, they're called God's son. Jesus is called God's son. And now look, he's going through the exact same thing. He's going to go through the exact same thing that the nation of Israel went through. It's like, God, history is repeating. It's like Jesus is this new Israel. Jesus is um, God's son, um, like Israel was supposed to be all along. He's going through these same motions. He's not going to go into Egypt there, or into slavery there, but he's going to get called out of Egypt. He will he will be what Israel never was able to live up to. But then we see how Herod reacts to all this in verses 16 through 18. It says in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod's actions, he sees that he was tricked, becomes furious, and he sends men to kill all the male children, both in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem. And based on population estimates from that time, that is probably between 10 and 30 kids that are zero to two years old. And it's, just, it's a horrible thing. I mean, can you imagine somebody coming into your town and just going into your house and soldiers rounding up all these kids two years old and younger? Whether you're a parent or you're just people watching it happen or you're a sibling watching your your uh, brother or sister get, or your, your brother get taken out and murdered. And why two years old? He had asked the wise men when the star they were following appeared. And they must have said two years ago or something like that. And so he uses this timing like because he asked them, we saw in Bob's passage, when did the star appear? And they, he gets that information. Now it says based on that information, he figures, okay, this baby, born king of the Jews, must be two years old or younger. So he just wipes all of them out. And we might ask, well, did he really do this? And sometimes people will read this in the Bible and they'll be like, well, there's no other record of Herod doing this thing uh, besides in the Bible. Uh, but we shouldn't dismiss the Bible as historical record because it's proved true, uh, never proven false according to historical record. But Herod the Great, this king, was known as a paranoid and ruthless king, especially at the end of his uh, his reign. He, and he would have people, even his family, executed if he perceived, you know, even just a thought that they were a threat to his throne. Just a list of things. There were several large groups of actual or suspected conspirators that he killed off, in one case, with all their whole family. He was mad at his favorite wife, and so he had her strangled. 
He was deceived into executing two of his sons. On his deathbed, he had another son executed. And the first century Jewish historian Josephus records that Herod ordered some nobles to be executed at his death. Okay, when I die, I want you to get a bunch of nobles and execute them. Because he wanted there to be mourning at his death. He wanted people to be crying and weeping. And what actually happened is after he died, the people released the nobles and there was celebrating because you know, I mean, he was just a ruthless king. And so this act that we read in the Bible is consistent with Herod's character recorded elsewhere. And it shouldn't necessarily be a surprise that it wasn't recorded somewhere else as this big event um, because there's all, all these other horrible events that Herod did. You know, it's just like one little thing of many that would have been seen on his record. But obviously as we read it, it's like, oh my word, this just shows us what this guy's uh, character was like. And then we're told that this is a fulfillment. Verse 17 says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the passage that Emma read. And a lot of that chapter is filled with hope. It's a, with, When the prophet Jeremiah is living, uh, he's in Jerusalem and it's, he's telling them, we're going to be taken off into exile into Babylon. They are being attacked. They've been unfaithful to, the, to God. They've been kind of going through the motions and doing things that God hates and uh, thinking like, well, we got the temple here. You know, we got the temple, the temple. This place is never going to be taken down. And Jeremiah says like, no, you can't just put faith in the fact that there's this building here. God will remove his presence and we're going to suffer the consequences for all of our unfaithfulness. But this chapter, chapter 31, it's a famous chapter, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, where God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, and I'm going to forgive you of your sins, and everyone's going to know the Lord who's in, in relationship, who's in covenant relationship with me. This chapter filled with hope of restoration. Yes, we are going to go off into exile. We are going to be deported to Babylon. Remember we talked about the deportation to Babylon back in the, the first chapter, verses of this chapter. And we're going to be taken off. But look, there's hope of restoration. There's a renewal of God's covenant relationship with us. Forgiveness of sins. Knowing God. But then there's this one verse that points to the sadness of the mothers watching their children walking off into a foreign land. Walking, being carried off with chains or you know, swords or spears or whatever off into Babylon. And the reason we're told Rachel weeping. Remember Rachel was one of Jacob's wives. Uh, we've learned, you know, Joseph was one of uh, Rachel's kids from Genesis. And so it's almost like Rachel is the great, 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 great grandmother. It's, she was bo- buried around Rama. And so it's like she's standing there at Rama watching her great, great, great grandchildren go off in exile. And she's weeping for them with all these other mothers who are in the current time uh, weeping for them as well. And in Matthew, the weeping is not caused by a foreign nation or foreign ruler. Uh, It's not caused by somebody outside of Israel, but it's caused by the current king of the Jews. God's people are weeping at the hands of their own king, the person who's supposed to be taking care of them. But there's the hope of restoration. The weeping is temporary because salvation and joy are on the horizon. And this Herod killing of the innocent babies reminds us that in Egypt, in the time of the Exodus, um, that Pharaoh said, uh, there's... Too many, there's too many Israelites around here. We've got to take out all these little kids. And you remember Moses escapes it by getting put in a basket. And he 
floats down the river and then it gets taken into e uh, Pharaoh's household, actually. So in Egypt, the Israelite infants were slaughtered and Moses was spared. And in the same way here, uh, these other infants in Bethlehem are killed at the hand of a ruler over them because he's afraid and Jesus is spared. And so Jesus is reliving the story of Moses as well. He's, re he's living the story of Israel. He's living the story of Moses. And we'll come back to uh, those things uh, later at the end. But then we're told in this last section that they do return to Israel. Verses 19 and 20 say this. When Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Herod, he dies, uh, and they're hanging out down in Egypt for who knows how long. I mean, they're kind of in a holding pattern. I don't, we aren't told that God said, You're going to spend this amount of time down there. She's like, Go down to Egypt and. Joseph, you know, he's not like looking on the internet being like, oh, sure enough, Herod's coming. It's just like he just has to take God at his word. And, okay, I'm, I'm going to move my whole family. You're trusting, you know, it could be like, yeah, it's kind of an inconvenience. Like, is that really going to happen? Like, that's a lot of hassle. I'm just going to stay put and hope it works out. No, he just goes down. And then now he's in Egypt. He has no idea. Uh, once again, can't look at the news. Oh, Herod died. Uh, now I can go back. He just says, down in Egypt, doesn't know what's going on. And then God's like, you can go back now. And he has to trust God that it is safe, that Herod uh, is gone, and that he can lead his family back there safely. And once again, we note Joseph's obedience, 2.21. And he arose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But he's warned, once again, a second warning, verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And so, instead of going back to Bethlehem, he goes back to the area of Galilee, which actually, if we're reading Luke's Gospel, we learn that that's where the family was from originally anyway, and they're in Bethlehem because uh, the emperor said, we need to do a census of all the people, so go back to like your hometowns and Joseph's hometown where he would need to be registered was Bethlehem. And so they moved from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They have the baby there, uh, but then they go down to Egypt, and now they come back uh, to where they were originally, Galilee, um, in the city called Nazareth. And we're told again, a third fulfillment from the Old Testament. And he went and lived, verse 23, went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now what's weird about this quote, which kind of isn't a quote, he just says that he'd be called a Nazarene, is that there is nowhere in the Bible where it says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Uh, in fact, the city of Nazareth didn't even exist in the days of the Old Testament. It's not to say that God couldn't have said like, hey, there's going to be this city called Nazareth, the Messiah's going to be there, for, but there's nowhere that it says this. Uh, and, but what is important to notice is that he said it was spoken by the prophets in the other quotations, he says, by the prophets. So he names like this specific spot where a specific prophet said something. But this is by the prophets. And so he's talking about this theme that was occurring in the prophets. And there was a prophecy that we saw last week that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's where 
King David was born. Oh, hey, the Messiah who's going to reign on the throne of David, he's going to be born in Bethlehem too. Like, of course, like they're going to come from the same spot. Like, that's going to uh, make sense. But there's also a theme of the Messiah being unrecognized and unimpressive. Like the, uh, Isaiah talks about, there's nothing about him that like would attract us to him. It's not like, well, either that guy is like leadership potential. You know, like it's not like there's something about how he looks. Like King Saul, people were like, whoa, this guy's like really tall. And I think I remember right, they said he was handsome. So I was like, man, like, that's king material. Uh, but it's like, no, it said the Messiah. There's like nothing going to be about his appearance that would attract us to him. That would make us say like, yeah, this is like a leader. And he he was going to be misunderstood. He's going to be rejected and ridiculed. There's this theme that was often missed uh, in the prophets that the Messiah was going to be this person that's like, well, this is kind of like a nobody. Like people don't really get it. They like misunderstand him when he comes. And Jesus is born in the well-known town of Bethlehem that everyone, you know, Herod goes and says, chief priests and scribes, where's the Messiah going to be born? Bethlehem. Now they know the answer. That's like, you know, Bible trivia 101 for them. Um, so he's born in the well-known Bethlehem, the city of David, where King David was born. But he's also from the unimpressive, unknown to the prophets, ridiculed town of Nazareth. And if you read in the book of John, uh, there's somebody who says like, oh, we think we found the Messiah. It's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And they're like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's just like this backwater town that people are like, nothing good can come from there. It's just this place that uh, nobody would have thought something great and good would come from there. So there's this prophetic theme of the Messiah, you know, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the Messiah being unimpressive, ridiculed, misunderstood, and rejected. And he isn't going to be what people would expect. Israel herself, uh, the nation, is an unlikely candidate for being God's chosen people. You read in Deuteronomy and God says, I didn't choose you because you're more numerous you're bigger and more powerful or because you're more righteous, like because you're better than other people. I just chose you because I chose you. I chose to set my love on you. In the same way, Jesus, the one who's repeating Israel's story, people are not going to be like, yeah, this is like, you know, top of the line. This guy went to like all the best schools and he went was born in the best town and like everything about his resume just says Messiah. No, he's going to be this person that he's going to be this unlikely candidate. People wouldn't have thought that he would be the Messiah because uh, he doesn't have the credentials people were looking for, but he has the ones that were important. And the fact that Herod seeks to destroy Jesus already shows that even as a baby, the Messiah would be rejected. And I named this message, the king who is opposed, because last week we saw how Jesus was a king who was worshipped, bowed down, honors a king by these people from a foreign nation. But then the people that are closest to him uh, closest in the nation of Israel, King Herod uh, himself is like, oh, I'm rejecting this. I want the throne, so I'm rejecting this Messiah. As we go through these passages, this passage in, in this one and last week and the week before, um, combined they have five fulfillment uh, quotations, where it's like, this was done to fulfill this, this was done to fulfill this, this was done to fulfill this. And as you look at it and think about, well, what's Matthew trying to get at? You know, Matthew wrote this gospel. It's the gospel according to Matthew. It's from his perspective and the events that he knew about and the teaching he was familiar with. And what's he trying to get at? He's just showing us that all the hopes and the dreams of the Old Testament 
Uh, and the whole story there is just being fulfilled in Jesus. Some of it's being repeated in Jesus. It's like, you know, everything that Israel was supposed to be, Jesus is going to be. Everything good and awesome about Moses, um, and every place he fell short, he's going to be all the good stuff, and he's going to overcome all the things where Moses fell short. And if I was to summarize in five words what uh, I was taking from all Ma- Matthew quoting all these things, I'm like, look at how this is being fulfilled. It's that God's purposes win over sin. God's purposes win over sin. Because in the chapter, the passage we're looking at, I mean, look at Herod. Like, he is trying to stop Jesus from getting to the throne. Jesus is wants, is going to go to the throne through the cross so he can die for our sins. We're told he's called Jesus because it means the Lord saves and he's going to save his people from their sins. And Herod, despite all of his best efforts, all he ends up doing is fulfilling Scripture. He's like, I'm going to get this king out of here. And then Matthew's like, yeah, well, that just fulfilled scripture by you doing that. And God looked at, he knew all this was going to happen. And so as he's having his prophets speak, he knows this is going to fulfill all these things, all these hopes, all these predictions, all these uh, things that happen in the nation of Israel, they're going to be repeated in Jesus. And God's just saying like, yeah, I mean, so centuries and centuries before what God said to the prophets, now it's like, okay, it's going to come about in this way. And then it all happens in a way that you couldn't even expect. You know, the king of the Jews trying to kill the one who's supposed to be the Messiah. And it's like, oh, and that made it so they moved to Egypt. Oh, out of Egypt I call my son. Oh, and also made it the slaughter of these innocent children. And then it's like, oh, that fulfills scripture too. And then, oh, he's going to live in Nazareth. Well, you know, he's supposed to be misunderstood. And nobody likes Nazareth. And so it's all these things that God saw would happen and knew would happen. And all this gives us should give us great comfort and hope because God saw it's going to happen. God predicted it would happen through the prophets centuries before. And I wanted to read just one part of our uh, statement of faith that the, in the first article, the very last sentence, you can turn there if you want. Article 1. It's the number 42 in the songbook. It's the last sentence. It starts, uh, Article 1, called God. Last sentence, uh, second sentence, I guess, is having limitless knowledge. So it says, Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself, to make all things new for his own glory. And this whole statement of faith is uh, a summarized gospel. You know, it's like summarize this is the teaching of the whole Bible, this is the gospel. And so it's like, well, how is that good news? How is God having limitless knowledge and sovereign power? How is that good news? And we think a lot of it's just thrown in there. Those are things about God that uh, need to be in there, and so they're in there. But having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God is graciously purposed. It's good news because God can graciously purpose all he wants to graciously purpose. But if he doesn't have limitless knowledge, he doesn't have sovereign power. He doesn't have the ability to carry out everything he's done. Maybe he can be, you know, the best chess you know, player of like, okay, like God is just the best at chess. So it doesn't matter what opponent's on him. He's going to win the game in the end. Uh, and that, you know, we can be like, okay, we've got to trust that God, you know, can work all of history and defeat everybody who tries to come against him. Or we can just be like, well, okay, well, I, I hope that I'm saved from my sins. I hope that I'll be with Jesus someday, but God, that's what God has graciously purposed for me, but I mean, I guess we'll see. Who knows? I guess we'll see. But God 
He has limitless knowledge. And so when he says, this is going to happen, I'm going to do this, he knows that he's going to do it. He has sovereign power, so there's nothing that can thwart his plans. So God promises something, when he purposes something, when he plans something, there's nothing that can thwart him. He knows it's going to happen because he knows the beginning from the end. And so it's good news for us that when we look at this and we see Herod uh, trying his best to stop Jesus, you know, that could have been game over from the beginning there. Like, oh, well, tried to have the Messiah born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, but I didn't see Herod come in there. And so all that graciously purposed plan just got taken up. But God knew all that was going to happen. He saw how it was all going to um, uh, carry out. And nothing surprises him. There isn't something that's going to come up that he hasn't already planned for. There's nothing too big for him to overcome. And so as we see Matthew saying, like, look, all these things, no matter what happened, like, it just serves to fulfill God's plan because he saw it was all going to happen anyway. This can give us great comfort and hope that our future is secure, like First Peter tells us, that it's an unfading, undefiled, it can't be taken away, it's kept for us in heaven, and nobody can take it from God. We also see that Jesus is the perfect version. He's the perfect version of Israel. He's the better Israel. He's the perfect son of God. God called Israel his son, but Israel was not perfect. Israel fell short. That's why they went into exile. But Jesus is the perfect Israel, who's able to stand in uh, our place to represent us for our sins. And Jesus is the better Moses. He's the perfect Moses. Moses was called a prophet and teacher, and he was the giver of the law. And Jesus is the perfect prophet, the perfect teacher, the perfect giver of the law. And as he is going and uh, kind of reliving all these stories that of the of the past, people would see like, wow, like all the things that God had created hopes in us. When he talked about Israel, he talked about Moses. He says, there's going to be a prophet like Moses who's going to come someday. Um, and he never came. And now, now he's here. Wow, Jesus had this, some of the same story as Moses coming out of Egypt, um, surviving the slaughter of all these babies and toddlers. So that's the big picture for Matthew. There's also a personal invitation for us as disciples. Matthew's concerned with us living as disciples of Jesus. And when we look at Herod, we may look at him and think, well, how could he do all that? God sent his Messiah, his king, and Herod, you wanted to rule instead of him? I mean, Herod even says, hey, uh, chief priests and scribes, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? It's not like he's saying, like, oh, I guess there's some kid being born. And, he, and he's like, he actually knows Jesus is the Messiah, or at least uh, knows that from the scriptures, and these wise men are saying it. And God sent his son, and Herod wanted to hold on to power and authority rather than step off the throne for Jesus to take his place eventually. And he had the wise men in the scriptures telling him that God was up to something. And instead of welcoming it, he sought to destroy it. He resisted God's will and he opposed God's king. And if a big picture of these fulfillments was God's purposes win over sin, for us personally as we think about our lives uh, uh, there would be the big idea would be this. Welcome Jesus by stepping off your throne. Welcome Jesus by stepping off your throne. And Herod has this opportunity to welcome Jesus, like to be, uh, you know, whether he's a puppet, illegitimate king, whatever it is, it's like he has this opportunity to like lead the nation, like, wow, the true Messiah's come. Like, let's welcome him and let's be excited about that. But instead he wants to hold on to power. And if we think about that, you know, would you rather? 
Well, Herod, would you rather keep being king or would you rather see God's Messiah come? Would you rather give up your throne uh, or would you rather uh, keep going on and ruling? And for Herod, he's like, well, of course, you know, I'm going to choose to stay on my throne. You know, I don't care about all these prophecies about God's kingdom. I don't care if it's God doing it. I don't care if it's God's son. I don't care if it's God's Messiah. I want to keep the throne. He wants to hold on to it. But it's contrasted with uh, what we saw last week, the wise men, that they are seeking out Jesus to honor him as king. And it's contrasted in this passage with Joseph. God commands, Joseph obeys. He does what God tells him. And there's this pattern in these passages that when we look at uh, both the fulfillments, um, out of Egypt I called my son. God is always in the process uh, of calling us out of something and into something. And perhaps there's, you know, like a journey, there's a journey in between there that we're uh, waiting for what being brought into, we're brought, brought out of something. But if you think about the people of Israel, they're called out of Egypt, and there's this phase where they're going into the promised land, but they're not yet there. And if you think about the, uh, the people going off into exile, it's for their own sin that they're going there. God is, they're out of the promised land, and they're going into exile. And they're very different reasons. And the first one, they're being called out of slavery into the promised land. And so they're leaving these shackles behind. They're leaving these oppress- the oppressive pharaoh. They're in slavery. And God's calling them out of slavery and into the promised land, wanting them to worship him. But in that in-between time, when they need to walk by faith, they're grumbling. Well, we had it way better back in Egypt. When we were slaves, we had it way better. We were fed better. And we're out here in this desert to die. You know, anything's better than dying in this desert. Like, let's just go live back in Egypt. And they want to return back to Egypt. God's calling them out of Egypt and into uh, greater things. And they want to go back. And so for us, we may, in that in-between time, when we're having to walk by faith uh, in the desert from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan, requires faith. And we can feel like, you know what, I don't really want to do it God's way. We don't welcome what God has for us. We don't welcome Jesus uh, by stepping off the throne. It's like, you know what? I think God doesn't really know what he's doing here. I'd rather just go back to the slavery and the stuff I had uh, back there. But on the other side, sometimes we may be in a period where it's like, we've just been ignoring God for a while. And he's trying to wake us up by taking us out of the comfort we had because the people... They went out of the promised land and into exile to experience, like, this is where your sin takes you. If you did, I'm not just going to let you sit in the land I gave you and think everything's fine. I need to show you this isn't fine. If you're going to keep worshiping false gods, keep ignoring me and sinning, this is where it takes you. And if you keep going down that path, like that's just where you're going to end, end up. And so he takes them out of the promised land and into this uh, place of exile so that they can see this is... What, what happens uh, when you are ignoring me? He takes them into discomfort and pain and grief. And God loves us enough to let us experience the consequences of our sin and to discover the emptiness of the false gods we worship. He loves us enough to let us experience the consequences of our sin and discover the emptiness of the false gods we worship. Because if he just shielded us from them all the time and rescued us, and kept us out like, you know what, you, you're just ignoring me and you're kind of doing your own thing and you're just staying in the, the same patterns and ruts of hurting other people and hurting yourself, but it's okay, I'm just going to you know, kind of 
clear it all up so nothing happens to you. No, he lets us experience, like, this is where this path leads you, so that we will say, you know what, God, you're right. I, sh- I need to stop this. I need to move out of this. But God also loves us enough to take us out of slavery, that he comes in with a strong and mighty arm, as we're told in the book of Exodus, and he pulls us out of slavery. And part of that, uh, sometimes when we're in the promised land, we just go back into slavery of worshiping the false gods and sinning. And so he's like, okay, like, I've got to get some discomfort here and show you that you're not living how I've called you to live. And there's this book, I was reading it today, and a line from it struck me. It's called Absolute Surrender. And as we're thinking about you know, that in-between time or God taking us out uh, of our comfort so that we can experience what our sin is costing us, it tells us that this book says, God wants to bring us to a condition of utter brokenness. It says, and this guy says, somebody said to me, that call to die to self and sin is dreadful. You know, <laughs> come die to yourself. Jesus, you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What? Deny myself? Take up my cross? Die to myself? And this person's talking to him. He's like, that's dreadful. And he says, yes, it is dreadful if you had to do it in your own strength. If you would only understand that God gave Jesus to die and he wants to plant you into Jesus, you may be delivered from the accursed power of the flesh. Believe that it is a blessing to be utterly broken down and to be utterly in despair. Then you may learn to trust in God alone. And so God will remove the things that we so hold on to uh, the idols, the, the sin patterns, the things. He'll take us out of the place where we're feeling like, you know, life's just going well. Uh, and I just like all the things I have. But he'll take us out of that so we can uh, learn humility and learn, you know, those things don't really satisfy. They're not really good for me. And grace flows downhill. And so when God, we feel we're in a place where God's humbling us or showing us uh, things about us that it's like, man, that's not a good thing. Or he's taking things from us that we put our trust in, our security and safety in. Uh, that's when we need to get down on our knees, like Bob was saying last week, that these wise men come and they just put themselves on the floor before Jesus. And it's like grace flows downhill. God's presence flows downhill. And when we put ourselves low before God, um, it, we get ourselves in a place to experience his grace and presence. And so, so we wrap up, consider uh, what might you be holding on to instead of welcoming Jesus and stepping off the throne. Because we can say, like Herod, I want life to be this way. I want it to keep going. I'm going to hold on to this. And this throne is what I want. And I don't want the thing that God is doing. uh, But God's going to do it anyway. Uh, Maybe there's something you're holding on to. What if you've been unwilling to give up in order for God to have his way in your life? What have you been unwilling to surrender in order to welcome Jesus' kingship over your life? What have you been holding on to instead of saying yes to God's will, purposes, and plans? Maybe you felt, you know, there's this thing God's calling me to, but I don't want to do it. Too much discomfort. It's too hard. Don't want to go there. We need to model after Joseph. Like, he just goes. He doesn't know what the path is going to be, what the end is going to be, but he knows God told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. Maybe there's something in your life that just keeps getting in the way. It's like kind of that would you rather. Would you rather have more of God in your life, a better relationship with God, or keep this thing in your life? And it's like 
we get put in these situations. It's like maybe it's your phone or TV or maybe it's, uh, I don't know what it is. I was thinking phone and TV because those are the things that come to mind for me. It's like so easy. Like, oh, whenever I have a spare moment, let me just fill it with whatever's on this thing. And it's usually kind of pointless stuff anyway. Or like, oh, okay, the night's done. Turn on the TV. And it's like, and then next day feeling like, man, I wish I was closer to God. Okay, would I rather be closer to God or have this thing? And if you have to choose, is it like, you know what, TV always gets in the way or phone always gets in the way or um, money. money, whatever it is. Yeah, what, whatever it is that we keep holding on to and not letting go of. Um, or maybe it's perfection. Like, I really struggle with perfection. I'm like, oh, I just wanted everything to be perfect and it stresses me out. It's like, okay, which one do I want more of? To, like, seek God and trust Him or to just keep pushing for everything to be perfect in my life or a church or whatever? And it's like, so often we say, I'd rather have the phone. You know, and we might just keep looking at it, even though it's like, man, I wish I was closer to God. And we do that would-you-rather game. So take a moment, I'll just give you a couple seconds. You know, what's the would-you-rather for you, or what is you holding on to? We welcome Jesus by stepping off our throne. The opposite of what did. It's not up there, but I have it here. Our logo. Our logo reminds us as a community, we're a community that's welcoming Jesus by stepping off our throne. That Jesus, you know, that's Jesus' crown. No, not mine or yours. <laughs> that we are like, hey, you know, I'm in the middle of this and everybody revolves around me. Or, you know, I'm direct, you know, me, Mitch, is directing it all and you guys all revolve around me. Or, like, maybe all, sometimes we can feel like, you know what, I'm kind of in the middle here and I'd like everyone to do what I want and I'm not happy that they're not doing it. But we're a community that's welcoming Jesus by stepping off the throne and we're all around him like those wise men came, bowing ourselves down, honoring him as king, welcoming him into our lives, um, giving our gifts to him and worshiping him. Uh, and so... Uh, I'm excited to celebrate Christmas Eve and enter into the us being able to do that as a community and welcoming other people to do it with us as well. Let's pray. Father, we are... Uh, sometimes we can be more like Herod than we like to admit. That we can want to stay on the throne of our lives, uh, our families, our churches or, or workplaces that we just want to be the one in authority, the one in control, the one running things and calling the shots, but you're the one who calls the shots. And so would you let us have faith like Joseph had, that he, when you said it, he did it. Would you let us not hesitate? Would you let us not make excuses? Would you let us receive your forgiveness for all the times we do hesitate and make excuses and all the times we we do the would you rather and we choose something over you. So would you uh, help us as we go into the Lord's Supper and receive your forgiveness and your grace. In your Son's name we pray.
Amen.